0: Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional songmaking at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash audit.
1: I'm Laura Lavoire, and this is Song Cycle. The official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song, its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I'm talking with Kathy Kelly. There's this phrase out there, jack of all trades, master of none. Well, Kathy does all all the things, and she's mastered every single one of them. She's a conductor, a coach, a writer, a pianist, a mentor, a leader, and to put a cherry on top of that impressive Sunday, a delightful, honest, and genuine human Kathy is the kind of person you can make the most beautiful, intimate music with in one moment, and in the next, you're having a profound conversation about gender and racial equity in the music world. And I have been lucky enough to do both with her. All right, so here we are, everyone, another episode of Song Cycle, and today I am graced with the beautiful presence of Kathy Kelly, who is a collaborative pianist and coach extraordinaire at CCM, an international phenomenon and (laughs) all-around fabulous person, and she looks (laughs) so beautiful today, and it's great to see her lovely face.
2: Kathy Kelly. (laughs) Aw. Thanks. Can I have that introduction, like, every time I do anything? Like, get up in the morning?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll send you a soundbite of it, and you can have it on your website when people, like, go... It'll just be there to greet the people. That won't be
2: too much. I think that'll be, yeah.
1: (laughs) You absolutely deserve it.
2: (laughs) Ah, well, what a a beautiful way to open. I just like back at you, my dear. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invite and the chance to talk to you. It has been too long. We have not spoken to each other since January.
1: I know. It's funny because that doesn't feel like so long ago, but then you realize that was six months ago.
2: Holy... And I'm just grateful
1: that 2021 <laughs> isn't crawling as much as 2020 did. I remember April of last year felt like it lasted 10 years.
2: Well, I mean, we were all just like in the soup together, right? What a, <laughs> what a, what a disorienting experience, March and April of last year, right? Um, I was recounting with a colleague, I guess a couple of months ago, probably around the time of the anniversary of the shutdown, of just how wild that two weeks or so leading up to it was as we were sort of like piecing the news together and like slowly realizing that there was going to be a big impact and then those couple of days where it was like, oh, so it's going to be a big impact. And then and then everybody just at once having to figure out what to do.
1: I remember good times very <laughs> distinctly thinking that it was only going to last a couple of weeks. And then a couple of weeks turned into a couple months. And now we, here we are a year and a half later. Right. Wow. All right. So Kathy, you're here. <laughs> True. We're here. Can you tell the good people who are listening, who may not know who you are, who are you? What do you do? How'd you get into it? What's our
2: connection? Um. Well, we are connected through Cincinnati Song Initiative and yes, actually ma'am. through CCM. I. Before, before I knew you as part of CSI, um, we had met, because um, you were just finishing up your doctorate at CCM when I was new on faculty there, but then we had the chance to perform together this year as part of CSI's innovative all-digital season. Um, we did amazing Szymanowski together and it was wonderful to collaborate as musicians. That's one of the things I do. I play the piano and mostly with singers, I'm a vocal coach, I also perform a lot in recital. Sometimes I'm a conductor, uh, sometimes I'm a teacher and sometimes I'm a writer and I've always liked to do a lot of things. And I think I was drawn into opera and then a lot of other things around opera as a singer who collaborates with pianists because there's the opportunity Always to explore so many different facets of things, music and words, you know, small collaboration, big collaboration. I'm kind of here for all of it.
1: That's one of the things I admire so much about you. And one of the first things that just kind of knocked me to the floor when I learned about you and your career when you first came to CCM is you do everything all the time. be like oh yeah you know I have a full coaching studio I am arranging an opera or I'm translating an opera I'm conducting another opera I am doing master classes over here and you're just you're doing all of the things and not only do you do all of the things you bring your amazing talent and just musical prowess to everything you give a hundred percent for everything and I don't know how you do it. Can you tell me I mean, how you do it? <laughs>
2: because well, it's amazing. Some, some of it is just like being kind of a relentless person, right? I mean, it's not—it's not always a great idea to give a hundred percent to everything. Sometimes people are like, "Could you give like sixty? That would be nice." Uh, but I don't know. I think I think I'm a very energetic person, but I also have a pretty simple life. I have my my partner, my husband of many many years and it's just us in the house. So there's that's a pretty uncomplicated way that that decomplicates your life in terms of time management, but I also just have kind of a golden retriever mind, you know. <laughs> you know, my there's always been a fair amount of like squirrel to my career, you know. That's uh, I playing the piano was interesting and then I thought playing the piano with other people was interesting but also words were interesting and just I'm a little hobby prone my husband would say project prone but also don't you think that's kind of part of a musician's existence which I would say we are starting to be more honest about I mean really when I think of all the musicians I know like most of us do all the things. You know. We perform and we teach and we study and we might have other things that we're involved in professionally too. And we've got other things that may or may not be income bearing that are meaningful to us. And that's, that's, that's part of the deal. That's part of the creative life, but also part of putting together a life that is funded by your creative or artistic work. And I, it's my perception, this might not be right, but it's my perception that when I was studying, we were less honest about that and more interested in presenting ourselves as only doing one thing. And sometimes maybe being kind of penalized at the higher levels of the profession for wanting to maintain more than one source of activity. And I think that's changing now, um, partially out of economic necessity, but maybe also partially through a demand for greater transparency in general in the field. And all of that, I think, is good. So I say, I say to those of you who are hobby prone, like own it, step into it, do as many things as you want to.
1: Thank you so much for saying that, because this is something I have talked to a lot of my friends, musicians, my husband, my mother, about these things where it's like, you know, we we are trained in such a highly specific way that I feel like we are definitely drilled at some point in that training. You know, this is what you do. Focus on this. Don't do anything else because it'll pull you away from what you're training to do. And it was so funny, uh, anecdotally, my, my husband was talking to me about how he feels like he's not always great at his job because he likes to bounce from thing to thing. And I said, I think that's how we are as artists is we we are very project based and we kind of Bought from thing to thing. We're working on, we're performing one opera, but we're also working on a debut recital somewhere. And we're also working on an outreach program. And we have to, you know, prepare to give a lecture on something or, you know, any number of things where we are constantly project based. And I think normalizing that is very important because otherwise we're not going to, we won't survive. I wouldn't survive. I always have to kind of like you move from thing to thing.
2: Right well there are there's there's another element to it as well that is kind of starting to be uncovered in my brain so in order to become excellent as something at something you do have to dedicate an enormous amount of your time and energy to it you know you're not you're not going to become a singer at your level by sort of like casually practicing every now and then you got to carve out the space in your life to dedicate that the thing is though the sort of, so it's it's not dishonest to say that you have to make the room in your life for that to happen, which means putting some other things to the side, right? But when we take that into this sort of longstanding myth of like soul dedication, you know, unless you give everything, you're not gonna have a chance. And that sort of proof of artistic dedication, which is I only do this, not only does it, make people reluctant to say that they want to do more than one thing for fear of being seen as less serious. But that also plays out in some real like problematic ways across gender and class lines, right? Because if you're if you're in a situation where you have to work in order to get money to fund your serious study, then does the very fact of needing to get that work count against you in terms of your seriousness, if you have to carve out time for another job, or this has been used against women a lot, right? This is a story that I've probably told too many times, but at the end of my master's degree, right before my, my last recital, my teacher, whom I adored, said to me, you know, you're really so talented, Kathy, it's too bad that you're a woman. <laughs> and and then he was shocked that I looked hurt at that. And he said, listen, I don't mean anything bad by that at all, but you're already married. And so probably soon you'll have children and music will never be the most important thing in your life. And so you're not gonna make a career, which is too bad because I really think that you could. And so I think there's often been that perception against in in a highly gendered society where it's seen that women will like shoulder more of the communal family responsibilities and certainly all of the child bearing or child yes child bearing the child rearing <laughs> responsibilities that 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 means that that person automatically is not going to have the dedication necessary to make a serious career so I think. You know, we're in a period where there are more people working to unpack all of that. And that's an important part, too, I think, of normalizing and also encouraging artistic people to pursue whatever broad palette of interests they have and to say that serious artistic achievement is possible that looks different or that maybe gets a step away from that myth of like touched by the muse and <laughs> totally dedicated <laughs> to nothing but that, right? Yeah To your point, I think
1: many people I've talked to, myself included, who have to work a job in order to fund X, Y or Z part of their career, whether it be lessons or summer programs or who have kids or have a family that they need to look after or any of number of those things that kind of take you off that mythical path of the sole dedicated artist, I have found that many of those people are more dedicated to their craft because they have they have limited time to dedicate to it. So their practice is better and more efficient. They learn more quickly and they're able to really digest a lot more information. And they're dedicated to actually moving forward with a lot of these things that I think if it was your sole focus, you may lose sight of that sometimes and get lost in the mire of self-flagellating practice, perhaps. (laughs)
2: very possible right that's i mean an artistic life and artistic achievement is possible for anybody who who has got the the right combination of gifts by that i mean the things that you don't work for like your voice is pretty you know your your mind is smart <laughs> your fingers can go fast and then and then whoever dedicates the time to like cultivating all of that major achievement is possible. And we're in such a time of unpacking and examining the ways in which that's traditionally been done. I think that we're I think that's hard and tricky for classical musicians because we've put such a premium on the past. You know, we we really worship expertise. We worship the traditions as they're handed down by different scholars and performers. And there is nothing wrong with that. But I also think that there's I mean, there's obviously a lot of problem and a lot of bad practice handed down in the way that we've done things. So I'm happy to be living in a period where where more and more people are really working on examining all of that and taking the good and trying to change and transform what hasn't been good and to take it all forward in a new way. I think technology is a big part of that, and not just technology as, you know, grabbed onto during the pandemic, although that's also a big part of it. But the ways in which we can connect now are very different than even five or ten years ago. And that makes a lot of different conversation and a lot of different work possible. And we need it. And I think it's already bearing fruit.
1: I totally agree. And I have so many things, follow-up questions that I want to ask you on all of that, and I just don't know where to start. So I'm just going to start from the top, and we're going to work our way down. So we're talking about art and words and music and artistic connection and finding new ways to communicate with people and engaging ourselves in various aspects of the artistic process. So we are an art song podcast. So I want to know for you, what is an art song?
2: I saw that question in in the email that you sent over, and I thought, oh wow, how am I gonna how am I gonna answer that? I mean, an art song is words, poetry, or prose set to music for a singer and a pianist. I think I spent most of my life thinking about song as the more intimate works on kind of a sliding scale between between song and theater essentially between song and opera right there's more and more work that blurs that line or there's more and more work at, at more spaces along that continuum it's interesting there's this piece that has gotten a lot of traction recently this this opera by Pauline Viardou, um, her setting of the Cinderella story and it, I mean she wrote it Back in 18, whatever. I'm so bad with dates. Uh, but for a full cast of characters and piano, and called in an opera. So I, I'm interested in more theatrical works that are being written for an intimate group of people, maybe even just singers and piano. I'm also interested in theatrical approaches to some of the traditional art song canon. So I'm not even really sure how to answer that question. What I love about the art song setup is the possibility of two performers to enter into very intimate and easy dialogue with one another. You know, having spent most of my life in opera, that's a big series of compromises because there are so many people whose creative work goes into that equation. And like when we sat down together to do that Shimonovsky and it's just like you and me and the words and the music from both of us, there's so much possibility and flexibility and ease there. So I don't, it's classic me, right? Tons of words, not really an answer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, no, I love that because I think that's the beauty of our song is it can manifest itself in so many ways for so many different people. Some people have a very traditionalist approach. Some people have, like your approach, it can co- cover a wide swath of things. What I love though is that you brought up this idea of intimacy both between the performers but between the performer and o- performers and the audience or the spectators yeah. or the participants or whatever. That's key to what art song is and what it's capable of doing is, for me, it's one of those really connective types. Of art and you can you can perform about so many individual stories or complicated stories or deeply intimate or emotional stories on a very specific level and yes. to your point about it being song and poetry and sort of this more traditional performance method versus on the other side of the spectrum you have something closer to theater i think like all things all of art song can fall within that spectrum and I think it's great to allow the, the art form to be flexible on that spectrum as well.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. When you talk, when when we talk about intimacy, we really are talking about something quite traditional, right? You think about the Schuberti back in somebody's drawing room. I have never personally had a drawing room, but-
1: I'm gonna but, buy a but, house now
2: just mm, to get a drawing room. I know, right? <laughs> excuse me, does this house have a drawing room? I need one. If not, I'm not um, interested. <laughs> but but so it's interesting to think that like an art song recital in a place like Carnegie Hall steps away from part of the tradition you know the art form as it was born and then certainly to put performance out into the virtual space that's a weird combination of absolute intimacy and yet like like a total lack of <laughs> intimacy right but 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 to take to take those pieces whatever combination of pieces into these different arenas is really interesting and all of this is possible and i don't think every artist has to love or feel connected to every type of performance this is true in opera as well i'm doing i mentioned i was doing a bohème right now it's in a warehouse with two pianos and i've also like worked on the zeffirelli production at the met with the huge sets and the great orchestra and I love both versions. They do different things. You know, I've loved hearing great artists in Carnegie Hall singing Prose lyrique, And I love what CSI put out over the internet. And, and I love, like, house concerts. Like, I, you know, all of it, please. More art all the time.
1: I totally agree. And I think allowing ourselves to think that way decreases the feeling of scarcity in the sense of there isn't enough room for two types of bohem or there isn't enough room for having a different interpretation or a different visual interpretation of a Schumann song cycle. Right.
2: Or if you do it in some way that isn't the way it was originally conceived, you're not doing it the right way. I think it's possible to have respect for both. Like, there's nothing like hearing you know music written in the 13th century in a gothic cathedral it it is significant to hear any work in the circumstances for which it was produced you know it does it does open up your understanding of what the sound world is and all of that but you're right i love that you use the word scarcity if particularly when we're talking about the sort of Victorian era works that matter to a lot of us, when we're certainly when we're talking about opera, but opera, symphony, you know, classical music, um, European music, if we restrict ourselves to the circumstances of the original performance, um, just by terms of sheer economics, we're gonna edit ourselves right out of being able to enjoy those works a lot. And I think that would be really sad. You know, I think adaptation is great. I love hearing things in the original language. I also love hearing them in really well done adaptation. They fall, uh, the vernacular falls on the ear and therefore on the hearts of the listeners in a different way. And all of these things should work together for good, right?
1: Absolutely. And that's something I think you just, nailed is that we, we can still pay homage to the great masters, the great composers of, I guess, 1930 and before. The thing that you said that really struck me was allowing things to be in the vernacular.
2: One of the great joys of the kind of music we're talking about is to hear a composer's response to a language that they own right? I'll go back to the example of Boehm because I'm doing it right now. That music is Italian because Puccini was Italian and he was working with a great Italian libretto. So if you know and love Italian, you can, I mean, there's so much to enjoy in terms of how the music is inspired by the language that it's highlighting and supporting. And if you love language, that's going to be one of the things that you love. However, I think it would be sad to say that your deep understanding of that language is a requirement for you coming to enjoy this piece. Or if you come to enjoy this piece, you're gonna spend a lot of time like reading the story. I don't mean that people who don't speak Italian can't enjoy an Italian opera, or that somebody who doesn't speak German can't enjoy, you know, dichte Liebe. Of, you know, of course they can but your own language falls on your ear and on your heart. I said it already, but I really liked it. So I'm gonna say it again <laughs> in a different way. And and this is why I use the, the term adaptation because I think if you are going to adapt a text in the vernacular of the audience to a piece that already exists, that's more than simple translation. Cause we've all heard translations that just like they're they're clunky. They don't sit in the music the right way. And so that takes some that takes some real creative work. But translation is essentially adaptation anyway, right? There is no exact translation. Um, you're always making creative choices there. So I respect anyone who can do it well. And I really respect the idea of doing it.
1: And as we're talking about creative approaches to music and expanding I I guess essentially its definitions and how we interact with it can you talk to me a little bit about your project
2: interstate
1: and how that falls in into all of this discussion that
2: we're talking about that's such a life changer that it's hard to know um hard to know where to start this goes kind of to another topic um which is okay classical music the bulk of the repertoire that we study, I guess I can't speak for instrumental programs, but certainly when we're talking about pianists and singers together, the vocal repertoire, whether it's art song or opera, the bulk of the repertoire that we study is from the 19th century still. And it, even if you get generous and say like mid 18th century up through the 20th century, it still is a relatively short bunch of human history and when you're talking about works for the voice that encompasses a period that is pretty distant from the 21st century in terms of who got to say things essentially what kind of i mean there are still big issues about what kind of speech and what kind of personas are public personas are acceptable for women are ex- accept- acceptable for people outside of the sort of mainstream, mainstream leadership of a culture. But, you know, it's, I think that that's a problem that we face just in our pedagogy that a lot of the poetry and especially a lot of the theater that we deal with in classical music training is is from essentially the Victorian era. So Interstate is a passion project. I am the co-writer of the libretto with my performing partner, Jennifer Cresswell, and Kamala Shankaram is the composer. But we created this work because we wanted to do something to address that particular problem as it relates particularly to female performers, just that of all of the great repertoire that is available to to female singers, which is a lot. The stories still feel rather restricted. There's a lot of women's experience that isn't expressed very often through that repertoire. And we wanted there to be like repertoire that required classical training, classical singing, that kind of athletic acoustic performance that that told a different story. Um, so it started, it started there and Another thing that we wanted to uh, deal with in this piece was kind of shaking up the singer pianist relationship. Can I go on a rather severe tangent here? Yes, or... please. <laughs> so um there is an amazing pianist coach named uh, Chanda Vanderhart, who's associated with the conservatory in Vienna, and she's recently put out a wonderful podcast called Too Many Frocks. Which is about collaborative pianists, specifically sing, uh, pianists who play for singers. And there's quite a quite a lot in that podcast that deals with the gender dynamics of the field. And so much conversation that offered by prominent people in the profession that's still about the accompanist's role as someone who's there to support the singer and not to pull focus, and even quite a bit of conversation about how, That's why women aren't, they have not in general risen to the top of that profession because women are inherently too distracting on stage whole bunch of discussion about like what women should wear in order to I mean it's it's quite something to hear all of this expressed by you know some of the leaders in the field like all of that is still out there so we were interested in creating a piece that involved the pianist as a dramatic counterpart not simply the provider of the frame for the singer's words but somebody who actually had text and even stuff to sing, which is terrifying. <laughs> but so we we ended up creating this piece, which is framed around a story inspired by the story of the serial killer Eileen Warnos. <laughs> she had a long friendship in letters when she was incarcerated with an old friend from her childhood. They got back in touch with each other after her very high-profile murder case hit the news. And our, our piece Interstate is not about them, but it was definitely inspired by this story. the story. The idea is that the singer in this piece is someone who's on death row for murder and the pianist is her childhood friend. They've gotten back in touch with each other and they're trying to understand kind of what happened in their relationship with each other. So they're intimate with each other, but they're not, friends exactly. They share a lot of common experience. I think that the story is one that a lot of people can relate to. I think we all were the person in middle school who like dumped a friend who wasn't on our same social level. We've probably also been the person in middle school who got dumped by somebody, you know, in that. And and so one of the questions that Interstate asks is, how much did did the loss of that friendship impact this this young girl who was in a very precarious circumstance but it also it also has real resonance in the sort of traditional art song singer-pianist situation you know what what is the support role of the person sitting on the bench and how does this story kind of resonate through, through you know, the, the, the story of sort of like the celebrity murderer in prison and the anonymous friend from the past? How does that resonate through the kind of old 19th century singer in a pretty gra- gown, anonymous person in black set up? <laughs> right now you're looking at me like, what? <laughs> this is the coolest thing ever. We're super proud of it. Um very soon there is going to be an announcement of Interstate being produced for digital release and um we are making that movie at the end of the summer. So, I feel pretty oh, excited about that. Gosh. I know and this is all a pandemic project. Uh, Jenny and I had been talking kind of around this story and like, you know, someday we need to like really dig in and make this piece for a couple of years. And then suddenly like everybody's work got canceled and we thought, all right. Now's the time. Let's get to it. So, I am yeah.
1: so, so excited for this on so many levels. So many levels. One, I, my favorite podcast is My Favorite Murder oh my gosh okay (laughs) so it's for those of you who don't know it's a podcast about solved and unsolved murder cases and like essentially a giant murder mystery podcast and do not listen to it at the gym alone by yourself at night it's (laughs) scary but I love that because it's such a cool story and cool in the sense of like even hearing about females on death row you know female felons females who commit murder it's It's a a unique subset of story, but that is very real in women and how it's not just what they do, but the emotion behind it, the relationships that broke, you know, that led to it or whatever. That's so incredible. And one of the things that I've loved collaborating with you and um, one of the things that I try to foster in relationships with pianists in general is that when you perform with someone, it's not just about the singer. It is very much a collaboration and very much the pianist and the singer together creating something. And I love that this project emphasizes that because it really is not emphasized enough both in in singerly training, but also I think, as you've mentioned in collaborative piano training, is that the roles are not trained as equals on the stage. And I love that that's something that you're emphasizing in this piece.
2: I feel like it's something that your generation is definitely like moving in a different direction than than mine was, was encouraged to do. One other thing I want to say about the story is that, yeah, I think it's very, it was very important to us to have a story about A woman who murders, who's on death row, but also comes from a life of prostitution, which was the reality of Eileen Wuornos' life, but the reality of so many people who are in that situation. And, you know, of the top 10 operas, which is this tiny little group of operas, which has been basically the same for the last 50 years at least, two of the most popular stories are about women who are in the sex trade. Traviata and Madama Butterfly and that's not the way that we like to think of those stories but that is what those stories are and the way in which those stories have been made to be about the character's individual choice and sort of individual strengths or delusions as opposed to about the economies that they're in and the pathways that are not open to them you know that's that's It's important to look at that. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about like canceling Traviata or canceling Butterfly, but it's so important for us to look at the stories that didn't make it to the stage or the specific stories that, that people did want to shell out money for and do want to keep seeing. I mean, it's 2021 and we still love Traviata and Butterfly more than most operas that have ever been composed, at least when you count numbers of performances. And that's, you know, that's a lot. I love the music too, but there's something that as a 21st century woman, that's hard for me to take about the aria Sempre Libera. Traviata is based on an actual historical woman who was sold to a man by her father for the first time when she was 11. But Verdi gives her an an aria that's about her personal freedom in the choice of her life. Like, I really want us to examine that. The, we musicians who, who keep on putting that story up and we audiences who keep on asking for it. Like, what? What's that about? That's not what this podcast is about. But in terms of all our repertoire and all of the things that we're quite sure we know about it, if if we don't look at it all through the lens of our own time, I think we're I think we're making an error. You know, I th- I really do.
1: I completely agree. And that's something I think we all need to recognize in the stories that we tell is. There is sort of this romantic notion that everyone is afforded the same opportunities, especially in stories. You know, we want to say, of course, Violetta was free to make her own choices and she chose this life and she had this tragic death after this glamorous life as a prostitute. And the very real situation we're in right now, it's actually quite a small minority that is actually afforded to have available to them all the opportunities and the choices that one would like to have and that many, many people are absolutely 100% not at liberty to make those choices for themselves because of the systems and policies that keep them in their place. Right. And classical music's
2: relationship with that is complicated, you know, uh, least. and I know complicated is like the weak word to choose, (laughs) complicated and interesting. But unpacking is also an overused word and I've already overused it. it. But I'm grateful to be around at a time when, again, there's just more creative energy and more good minds focused on this examination. You know, it's vital.
1: It is. And it actually leads me to kind of a a conjoined question that I want to ask you is, you know, we've talked a lot about gender roles in music. We've talked abstractly about racial roles and other sort of marginalized roles in music. And so for you, you are obviously identify as a woman and as a female, and you have had such an incredible career. You've done so many things. Like you said, you've given 100 percent in a variety and a manifold set of projects. And you're extraordinary in all of them. Can you talk to me a little bit about what those challenges were for you as you kind of moved through your career as a woman and what some of the rewards were that you experienced? Because I think we we like to focus on like the oh, the struggle, but there are also some, some really powerful breakthrough
2: moments that I think people need to
1: hear about too. So can you talk to me a little bit about about that?
2: Sure. I mean, I feel like how I look at being a woman in this field changes a little bit depending on my vantage point. And I like to spend a lot of time standing at the vantage point from which I can see the enormous opportunity that's been afforded me and and the great experiences and the chance to be a mentor. I was lucky to have a couple of really important female mentors in my life. I was well into adulthood before I identified some of them as mentors. I grew up in Northfield, Minnesota, which is a little college town. And because of my age, I'm a child of the 70s, which means that I was surrounded by parents of 20 years before that. I had a lot of musical mentors, like several important musical mentors in my early life who were highly, highly accomplished wives of professors in my community. And I didn't see them as mentors because they were like other people's moms. And like, so they kind of went into that lady category for me. And all of this is like on a, a level so far back in my head that I, I didn't even really have words for this until I was an adult. But like the choir director who let me start playing for the adult choir when I was still just a kid, the music director of the community theater who like let me play the piano for a show when I was a sophomore in high school, like people who saw my drive and my abilities and like gave me responsibility and gave me chances. I wouldn't have put the word mentor to them, which is my own stupidity and my own inability to see past my societal training but they just they went into that like nice caring teacher lady from my community category and I learned very early to see like mentors as you know the conductor of the big youth symphony and and then my teachers at college like it it was very clear to me that important musicians at the time of my training were men and, and people who could give you access to opportunities were men. So when I look at all of my early development, these highly, highly trained women who knew to give me opportunities, but also knew how to help me through those opportunities were absolutely essential to, to what happened to me later. I was also really lucky to have a terrific female mentor at the San Francisco Opera. I also had lots of great male mentors but I don't feel like talking about them right right now. (laughs) Kathy Kathgart, who was the director of musical musical studies at the San Francisco Opera, just seeing a woman in that position was so important to me, you know, because I did feel like I had a lot to prove. I definitely had lots of encouragement, but encouragement also came alongside remarks like the one my piano teacher made to me or... Or like with repertoire assignments, you know, I heard a lot of things like, you know, women aren't strong enough to play Rachmaninoff or like in this scenes program, you notice that the guys get the Strauss and you get the Mozart. You know, this is this is all from a long, long time ago. So I don't definitely things have moved on in some ways. I had the opportunity to be the first woman to occupy my position at the Vienna State Opera. That's something that I take an enormous amount of pride in. I've had the great opportunity to be one of an incredible group of female mentors in Beth Stewart's Turn the Spotlight program to help other amazing people coming up. So I feel like I've had a really fortunate ride with tons of people who like gave me a chance and gave me what I needed to be successful. I also can go stand and look at another vantage point and feel like things haven't come Far enough, fast enough. The fact that we still have some of the like incredibly gendered conversations around repertoire and even around performing styles that we do. And the fact that, you know, there still are not, relative to the number of women in the field, there we're still lagging behind and catching up in terms of having women in important musical leadership positions you know i think i think my generation did some things well and starting to look back at it now i hate to say back cuz i still feel like i'm in the middle of it but it begins to look to me like we have not come as far as it felt like we were coming over the last 20 or 30 years so so we have to keep on pushing and we have to keep on looking at what we're not doing that we might not be aware of
1: I have things I just I yes. Yes. (laughs) A thousand times yes. And before I jump into my next question, which kind of dovetails off of what you were just talking about, I cannot emphasize enough the role that female mentors have played in my career and in my growth. And I think it's so important for me to hear, but also just in general to recognize that there are incredible, amazing, smart, talented women who may be married who may have kids, who may not be married or don't have kids. It doesn't matter. They are still smart and capable and incredibly talented and so life-giving. And you've been one of those people for me. But I'm also just, it's so important to hear about for you that there have been over the course of your career, starting, you know, from when you were a little tater tot till now, That there are still women who uplift you and support you and um, encourage you to do the thing. And I think that's so, 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 so
2: important. One thing that, that makes me happy is that, and I mean, if if anyone is hearing this and thinking like that I'm dissing the boys, I'm not. It's just that I I do truly feel that they don't have to work so hard to get their props still. I certainly had lots and lots of men in my life that supported me and gave me chances. No question. Absolutely no question. But what interests me at this point in my life is, as I said, the long time it took to for me to identify some of my mentors as important mentors. It happened, I was asked to see, speak to a group of students, um, it's quite a while ago, but they were asking me about being the first woman to occupy that chair in Vienna and what it was like being a female conductor. and. I said the same thing to them that I had said for years in different interviews, which was, well, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't have any examples of female conductors, you know, all through my training, I never saw a woman on the podium. And I was in the middle of saying that for what, like the 20th time in my life. I mean, I, you know, it was something that I had said before. And I was suddenly struck by this insight where I realized that up until the age of 14, the only conductors that I saw, except for a couple, were women. The person at the community theater, both of my choir directors at church, my middle school orchestra director, my middle school choir director, all of the conductors I saw were female. And I did not think of them as conductors. I thought of them as teachers. I thought of them as ladies. And like, that's a, that's, that's a big thing. That's about gender. It's also about like class divisions within music, like what we consider to be like a big fancy career and a not big fancy career. But that was such a moment of insight for me and it really made me start looking at my own advocacy of my own colleagues and my own students like where did i draw lines in terms of who i thought was going to go places and how am i seeing the people around me and how am i offering or not offering my information my help my my advocacy that's what i mean about looking at what we don't see you know we all know that we're working hard but like what are the things that we might not see in ourselves that we, that we need to look at and, and focus our energy towards? And that was a big one. I mean, somebody who has, I've never hesitated to call myself a feminist. I've always thought of myself as like a powerful female advocate and a powerful female in my field. And like to have that moment of thinking I've categorized these women who gave me so much energy. I've put them off into like a little lesser category and literally gotten up in front of groups of young women and said, yeah, I never saw any women who conducted, never saw that. What a, what a powerful thing to realize, right? So part of, part of mentorship is to open up that category, like who do you think is important? And I love that you said women who might be married, women who might have children. I think we often, once, once that mommy thing happens, it's very powerful, the sort of professional discounting that happens. And like, we have to be, we have to be loud about it, but we, we just have to keep our eyes wide open about that and like super work to change that conversation. That gets us outside of the profession so fast into like equity in the home, et cetera, et cetera. But we can do that. And it is happening. Your generation's in such a different place about that than mine was at the same time. So I feel hopeful. Needs to move faster, but I feel hopeful.
1: I'm right there. Pedal to the metal. Let's go. Yes. 100%. <laughs> 100%. So as you're talking about these women, I mean, men too, um, but particularly we're focusing on on female mentors and people who forage pathways forward into equity in the workplace and not diminishing the roles of females and all of that in terms of the work that we do, what would you say it means to be a leader in music in the 21st century now versus what it may have been when you were at an age when you were being actively mentored by other women?
2: Let's see, where do I want to start with that? When I entered the profession in the early 90s, I think because of the way th- things were set up culturally, economically, specifically in the classical field, there was a very, very strong emphasis on specialization and a very strong emphasis on on sort of polishing yourself to be a great product. Both of those things are worthy. I also wanna make sure that I'm like, I'm not dissing either of those things. Like I, I am also a specialist to a degree and I admire many, many specialists. And I also admire anybody that does the work to make themselves ready to go in a very specific kind of repertoire. So I think from that, you get the whole era of like aria packages and auditioning in a certain way and polishing a certain small repertoire, whether that's orchestral auditions or or opera auditions or like song repertoire to a very, very high degree of perfection. And also you get people like really specializing in like art song or opera or new music or old music or, you know, like really really picking their tower records aisle and like sticking to it. So the way to be a good leader then was to facilitate that kind of learning and that kind of preparation. I think that in our current world, which is more economically stressed, but also just larger as more and more of us are trying very purposefully to look at how exclusionary our art forms have been. The good part of going down these rabbit holes is getting really, really excellent. The bad part is the sort of repetition of exclusion of people from these fields, you know, exclusion of people who are not white, exclusion of people by gender, exclusion of people by, you know, how willing they are to be obedient and respectful of the practices of the past, right? I think that a leader today has to examine all of that in their own training. They have to make a very big effort to educate themselves and learn repertoire and practices that they don't know already. They need to know a lot more about the musics and the art forms that their students are already connected to and to to understand those better and I think they have to be brave about being creators themselves even if creation of art isn't their main focus because that's that's another part of education where I entered it performers had been actively discouraged from being creators themselves for a long time. That's part of specialization. So if you were going to go be a composer, you could do that. But if you were a performer, you weren't a composer. So even things that used to be part of performing like improvisation, that's a skill that not only has kind of died in performers, but has been quite deliberately discouraged for a number of generations. So, I think that it's hard for people in the classical tradition to take the chance of not being great at something in front of people, you know, to try any sort of form of composition, like right in your, right in your own cadenza or doing some improvisation. And I have to shout out Melissa Dunphy here. She's a composer who did an amazing video on this topic. So I I am I am repeating her great ideas and her great thoughts on this. Um, this video is available if you look for her on Twitter. Like a total leader in this topic. She's incredible. So I think that leaders have got to show leadership by owning their own attempts at making stuff, whether that's like a poem or an organization and then putting themselves behind it. I mean you all are leaders at CSI, right? Like you made a thing. And I mean, it's scary, right? To put that out there. Another word that is very overused these days is entrepreneurial. But I do think that there's so much life in that. Like if we are, if we're creating our own work, if we're creating our own structures to support the creation of that work and the performance of that work, that that's going to be a vital part of of everything going forward. And in terms of people who are taking over standing organizations, the degree to which transformative work is happening there, you know, you look at Afton Battle in Fort Worth, the stuff that she's doing in terms of community engagement and programming, the sort of collective that they have going on in Texas right now with different opera companies helping support each other. All of the interesting stuff that's being done in the song world, there's You Guys, Sparks and Wiry Cries, the ways in which those organizations are collaborating with one another. So like risk-taking, collaborating, normalizing, liking to do lots of things, normalizing public trying and failing, those are all really, really important elements and will continue to be going forward especially as we're figuring out like how to land art in the virtual space. You
1: perfectly led into my next question for you. Is, okay.
2: <laughs> no, literally
1: could not have scripted it better. I wanted to ask you because you are a very creative person and we are obviously we were talking about this at the beginning. We are in a in a period of time where kind of kicking and screaming, we've been forced into a new era of creativity and of connection because of the pandemic and what we have to do with our art form. So are we, first of all, obligated to continue evolving the art form? Are we obligated to change it? And two, if so, what might that evolution look like?
2: Ooh, that's a big question. I mean, yeah, I, I,
1: I'm asking I've... all the tough ones.
2: <laughs> Listen, I think we are obligated to, to change it. And I think we can't help it. I mean even listen even even if we're performing bohem like in its original circumstances you know no we're not because you can flip a light switch right so technological changes have always influenced the performance of art whether you're plugging in your guitar or leading people into a massive hall with a parking garage underneath and like heat <laughs> and um the compositions exist, but like if we're not performing them and people aren't listening to them, then they kind of don't exist in a way. They, they exist through the performance and we're, we're creatures of the time that we live in. So I think the art form in, evolves simply through us picking up different compositions and performing them. I don't think everybody's obligated to be like a composer Everybody's not obligated to be involved in every part of this. And everybody gets to like what they like. If somebody says, I only want to hear Winterreise sung by a man at the piano in German, in a small space, that's legit. <laughs> you, like that's, that's, that's not me, but I get that. I, I get having a preference. So there's room in this big community for everybody But I don't don't think that we have the option of not engaging with the world that we're in or trying to sort of carve out a space that stays away from part of that world. And part of our world now is like this, how we're talking to each other. And it's probably been a long time since classical musicians have had to engage with like a brand new technology and way of doing things. I think, I think expertise in this regard is going to be required going forward because there's so much possibility here in terms of reaching people, in, in terms of including people. I think this has the opportunity to, I mean, certainly in terms of learning, it has the opportunity to absolutely change like the academy and the conservatory information doesn't have to be something that's behind a closed door in the head of one person that you painstakingly compete to get access to. And and of course, like going to a person and sitting down live with a person to learn from that person in the act of one-on-one music making is a very special experience. And that can't be replicated over the internet. On the other hand, if access to more of those minds in the way that is possible over the internet is is something that's made available to more and more people, how is that a bad thing? If information sharing and wisdom sharing and artistic conversation and collaboration is easier and less restricted by income and distance and time, like that's Only beneficial to us. Only like I can't see the downside.
1: Absolutely. And what what this is making me think of is it's a conversation I had with my sister and brother in law. We are currently reading Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti Racist, and he discusses a lot. You know, obviously racism and its counterpart anti racism. But one of the things that we've talked about while reading this book is this idea of like, okay, well, what if. What if we did just fully embrace white culture and just said, okay, this is it. Think of how boring food would be. Think of how boring music would be. Think of how one dimensional, all of the things that make life vibrant and flavorful and exciting would just be gone.
2: i got to say one thing that strikes me is how much has been lost to me through white culture. And by saying this, I'm not putting like my little family story on the same plane as what has been lost to like non-white people, like the the entire history of America and slavery and racism and genocide. This story is not that. I am not drawing a parallel between those things. However, um, it is significant to me that of my four grandparents. Three of them grew up in bilingual households and none of those languages survived to my parents. That's how strong the pull of, you know, white culture, like white, what does that mean, right? We know what it means because like we look at it all the time. The move toward like acting in that real American way, like joining the club also meant like putting aside a lot of you know, a lot of the markers that you brought over with you, even from Europe. Right. But it's the height of irony that I've spent my life in a profession that involves reconnecting with all of these European languages. Well, there were three of them that should have been handed to me and they weren't because all of my forebears were interested in like proving that they were real Americans, which meant speaking English, which meant dropping a lot of. Yeah. Absolutely. And so like you assimilate because you can, you know, because you have the right appearance to assimilate. Like that's, I, I don't mean like the real tragedy of racism in America is that I didn't learn speaking German at home, (laughs) but, but like, like we all, we all are diminished by this. Even those of us with advantage with appearance advantage you know, like skin color advantage within the within the culture. Like we've lost, we've lost out culturally to an enormous extent, and like we should do it different.
1: I <laughs> like we, yeah.
2: We should really do it differently.
1: And that's, I think, why what you said just really resonated with me on so many levels is because it really will allow for music to be richer. When you allow other perspectives, when you allow, allow other stories, backgrounds, histories, influences, sounds, colors, smells, tastes, whatever it might be, because there is not just one avenue towards creativity or craft. We have right. the opportunity now, I think, like you said, with new, easy and fast ways to connect with people To mentor people, to bestow our knowledge on people, to communicate about art and all of these other things that we hold so dear, it affords an opportunity to other people who may not have been afforded it before, and it will only make what we have richer.
2: Yep, absolutely. And to learn stuff. It's an extraordinary thing about the pandemic is that it was a circumstance that forced us into a situation where as musicians, nobody had expertise, right? You have, of course, you still had the expertise that you had. But just as I was saying before, like, unless music is being performed, it kind of doesn't exist. If you can't get together and make music with other people, then what are you doing? Is it like, what, do, what does your expertise matter if you can't connect? So the only way to connect was this way. And nobody was good at it. Like, I mean, in terms of like teaching online, learning online, trying to figure out how to make things not sound like ass online, much less, much less like rehearsing online, everything else. So suddenly, no one's an expert. As soon as somebody gathers some expertise, there's an enormous impetus to share it rather than to hold it back. Like that was extraordinary, right? Last summer when the people at New England Conservatory, Ian Howell specifically, just like shared all of that information about how to do your tech setup online. Like they could have held that back and been like, we're the tech school. We're the people that know what they're doing. They just, they gave it away, you know, because everybody needed it so much. And I say the pandemic like forced that circumstance, but already social media and the way that people can connect over social media that was inexorably pushing us toward a realization that there were that in this profession that's so much about expertise there were so many conversations and so many realities that we weren't looking at it's like here's how you learn your scales here's how you learn the great composers Bach Beethoven there's a lot that we've preserved and a lot that we've ignored And that's over many, many generations. So everybody went home at the same time and had to be not an expert at the same time, but also had the chance to connect with the conversations and the the sharing of so many stories that have been left out of this sort of great narrative of the European tradition of excellence, that at least there's the opportunity for people to open up their ears and open up their minds as hard as that is and as reluctant as any individual might feel and to transform the way that we do stuff I think probably we have to transform it a lot the way our teaching looks and even the way our performing organizations look but like I'm not scared of that we can do that deep breath we have to (laughs) we have to
1: it's kind of like the polar ice plunge, which, for whatever reason, Minnesotans like to do when it's negative God knows what, and there's what six inches of us? ice, <laughs> you just got to take a deep breath, and you're like, well, I'm here, so might as well do it. And I think a lot of people have embraced this, and it hasn't all been great, but it it's a testament to what you said, where, like, as a leader, you have to be okay with trying in public and failing. And being willing to have the humility and wherewithal to say, okay, well, that didn't work, but what will? To learn stuff. So, Kathy, as we wrap up here from our amazing conversation, what are some things coming up that our audience can keep their eyeballs out for? How can they connect with you? How can we keep our eyeballs out?
2: Well, I am, I am on the social needs. <laughs> um <laughs> You can connect with me um on Instagram. I am Kathleen Kelly Music, or on Twitter where I am frau a name I came up with in a particularly silly mood. I share a lot of what I'm doing there. I'm very excited about the nonprofit that I funded with Jenny Cresswell, my interstate partner. It's called GDQ Arts. Um, GDQ stands for Goddamn Queen, which is is, uh, an important piece of text from Interstate. We formed the nonprofit to sort of house all of the grant money that went to the creation of Interstate, but we're embarking on different projects now. The next one is called Invisible. And it is a celebration of those early female mentors that I was talking about. We've put out a call for stories and we have a wonderful young composer, Brandon Spencer, who's gonna turn those stories into a song cycle, which will be pre- uh, performed by a soprano named Imani Munchu, uh, who is, they're both fantastic young artists and we're very excited about that next project. I am conducting the premiere of an opera called Fat Pig, which is a setting of the Neil Labute play. It's been, um, Matt Bowler is the composer and it's been created for Tracy Cox, who's this incredible, I mean, amazing soprano, fat activist, um, an incredible presence also, like in terms of social justice work and fat visibility and um, gender equity, uh, just very, very inspiring person. So I'm super happy to be involved in that project, um, which is through Victory Hall Opera. That's all that comes to mind right now.
1: So only a couple things. <laughs> just you're, do- you're doing the least. <laughs> 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 well, that's well, amazing. All- Musicians are slackers, right, in general. just Oh, yeah, uh, we're a leech on and- society. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I personally will just keep my eyeballs out for all of those things. I'm so pumped for Interstate. I'm so pumped.
2: I can't wait to share it with the world. Um, I'm terrified about the movie part, but...
1: <laughs> oh, no, you're a natural. You'll be great. Oh, my gosh, I can't wait. That's going to be great. Um Kathy before we bid you adieu we like to ask our guests for a piece of advice that they can give to our listeners so funny or not serious or not what would your piece of advice be for our lovely
2: listeners I would say make stuff don't be afraid to make stuff write a poem make a cake write a song you know learn three chords on the guitar Don't be scared to do it. Don't think that you can't. And don't think that you're too old to start. You can get better at something from wherever you are. And you don't have to be great at something in order to totally enjoy it. And in order to share it with somebody else. But you are a creative person. Everybody is a creative person. So go for it.
1: Did you ever read The Artist's Way?
2: Yes. (laughs)
1: That just like brings me back to like the very opening, like the introduction to Artist Way, where she's like, You are in and of yourself a creation. Therefore, you are imbued with creative spirit. Yeah. And you are, in a sense, like obligated to be a creative spirit because of the fact that you are a creation.
2: Weirdly, I think classical performers sometimes lose sight of this because of the values that we hold in the recreation of others' music. It doesn't have to be this way, but but we do need to remind ourselves of that. I've often I've often felt like I didn't have the right to say that I was a creative person because I wasn't making my own stuff. Now I do make some of my own stuff. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't you know do. if it's good or I, I don't yeah, but and and whether it's good or not is kind of not the point. But now when I sit down to play music by somebody else, I don't feel hesitant to say that I'm a creative part of that process. Um, but, But I do think it's something that we struggle with a little bit. And it's something that we can change.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Even after the fact, I'm still thinking about so many parts of this conversation that I had with Kathy. From acknowledging and engaging with your extra musical interests, to gender and racial equity, to musical collaboration and leadership, to just making stuff because you love it, there's a little bit of everything. And that is some food for thought. You can catch us here every other Monday with new episodes of Song Cycle. And be sure to check us out online at cincinnatisonginitiative.org, and on all the usual socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all.